Welcome back, everybody, to another week of the Jerry Lawler Show here on Podcast One. My name is Sean Reedy. Thank you so much for the download. We know this is a very busy time of year. Things going on. Hopefully, this is uh, something you can use during the holiday season, uh, maybe on a drive back from from the relatives or whatever it may be. But uh, I am joined, as always, by the King of Wrestling, the host of Monday Night Raw, and the man who won the Southern title 52 times, according to a quick Whoa. Google search that I did. Jerry the King Lawler, how's your holiday season and everything else going? So far, so good. It's been really... Uh been really good so far this year. You know, we just kind of we get we can sort of get into a routine. I'll tell you this: this was a different year in the fact that this sort of put a little bit of a damper on Christmas, as far as I was concerned. Well, I know it did for Lauren as well because this was the first year that I've been together with Lauren for gosh, I guess it's amazing, like eight years now. And when I first met Lauren, Peyton was three years old, and so it was cool. Like the very first year. That I met Lauren. I met her maybe, I don't know, maybe ten or fifteen days before, before Christmas. And so we, we you know, we start talking and 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 gone out a couple times. And uh, you know, that's when uh, you know she told me that she had paid three year old son. I just had this idea that, and, and I've talked to Mick Foley about this since then, and he, he, I told him the idea, and he thought it was so great, and I think he's done it a couple times since, since then because he loved this idea. I have a friend named Charles, uh, Santa Charles, and he's a, the probably, as far as all the different Santas that I've seen around Christmas time. Charles, Santa Charles was the best. I mean, he had the greatest outfit. You know, it was coming up on Christmas time, and I told Lauren, I said, hey, I got a great idea. I think uh, this, w- this would uh, be something that Peyton would probably remember this whole life. What I did, I went over and I picked up Santa Charles on Christmas Eve. He had his whole outfit on, and, and it was about like maybe 6 o'clock in the morning. And I took him to on Christmas morning. And so I took him over to uh, Lauren's house. And of course, Peyton was asleep and we snuck him into the into the den there and had him putting out the gifts. I mean, he just looked so fantastic. And I've still got I've still got the pictures from that. But anyway, had him putting out Peyton's gifts underneath the tree. And Lauren went in and woke Peyton up and said, hey, hey, uh, guys, listen, I hear something. Come come here. Let's go look. So he. Gets up all sleepy eyes, just like a, you would think a kid would be on Christmas morning, goes around the corner and he catches Santa Claus putting the toys under the tree. So it was a really, it was a really cool thing that he remembered for years and years and years and years and years. And sadly, he's now 12 years old, just turned 12 in November. And so. Lawrence kept telling me, you think we should have the talk with him? Because I don't think he's, he had said a couple of things about kids at school, you know, talking about not believing in Santa Claus and that sort of thing anymore. And so we, but we really never sat him down and, and, and had the talk. And then suddenly one day, a few, a couple of weeks ago before Christmas, he almost sat us down and had to talk with us. That made for a different Christmas than, than, than it's been for the last, 11 or for the last eight years. So we didn't have to get up and make sure that Santa Claus had come during, during the night. And, uh, on Christmas morning, it was the three of us opening up 
our presents, all the presents were wrapped underneath the tree and that sort of thing. So it was, it was different and it was kind of, it was kind of sad, at least to me. And I know it was to Lauren as well, you know, but so that was, that was the only thing basically different about Christmas was then we went and spent Christmas day with Lauren's uh, parents and family and that sort of thing. And then I think that's the main reason that Mick Foley kept having so many kids. <laughs> Keep, keep at least some of them believing in Santa Claus. Yeah, I got to have somebody young enough to. I, I know it's a big, it's a huge thing for him, obviously Christmas. Oh, absolutely, and and I know that you know Noel and and this and Dewey and and all of those. He's. I don't think he ever has had the talk with them, and I think that somehow they realize. I know as they the older they got, especially Noel, I think they realize how much it meant to to Mick that they had. They never had to talk with him either, so it just. You know, it just goes on. Santa's just a tradition in the in the Foley house, and 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 Mick is just that way. You know, it's a it's the biggest. I mean, he's the, who's the only guy that uh, that we know of that wears some sort of Santa clothing almost every day of the year. You know, he was so jealous of the fact when I moved to a different house in Memphis. I lived on Walnut Grove Road in Memphis for like 26 years, and then I finally moved about nine or so years ago to a new house because my collection of Christmas and all sorts of stuff got too big for my old house, but I moved on a street called St. Nick Drive. And when I, so I, I live on St. Nick Drive in Memphis now. And when I told Nick that I, that I live now on St. Nick Drive, he like went crazy. Oh my gosh, how did you do that? You know, it was like a, the major jealousy there. <laughs> And you did uh, the artwork for his Christmas book, right? I did, yeah, for Christmas Chaos years ago. I did all the artwork for that Christmas book that I was really proud of. It turned out really, really good. Made the top ten New York Times bestseller list for children's books that year, and uh, it was it was a lot of fun. I was really under the gun. Thanks to Mick, I guess the the publishing company had already had another artist that they had signed up to to work on the book. And I don't know why or how, I don't remember exactly how it came up, but then all of a sudden Nick said, hey, wait a minute, Nick, Mick, I've been calling him Nick the whole time because I said Nick, but anyway, then Mick came up with the idea, he said, hey, wait a minute, Jerry Lawler's an artist, maybe we get him to do the the artwork on the book and it'll keep the whole wrestling theme, you know, connected there. So they contacted me and I was more than happy to do it, but unfortunately, and this, I can't even remember exactly what year it was, but he said, they said, uh, well, We've, we're under the gun on the, you know, on the deadline on this thing, and we've got to have all the artwork completely finished and ready to go to press in about two weeks. And I'm just, I mean, this is something that ordinarily, you know, you spend a year on working on this stuff. So I remember I was taking my, I was taking all my art supplies to the towns when I was traveling and, 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 uh, working every night and just working on those drawings in the, in the locker room. For the shows afterwards in the hotels that night. I mean, I literally worked around the clock to get those, uh, all those pieces of artwork done for that book. And every, everything in there from the cover, every single page was illustrated, uh, in two weeks. Wow. That thought it really turned out cool. We can now talk about, uh, what happened on Raw as it is now aired. And it was, uh, a very eventful show. The, the ending is the part that, uh, people were talking about most, but I know I think you had a, a couple things you wanted to mention about the program. Let's see. What did I, th- <laughs> tell me again, what did I say? I thought, I knew we were going to talk about the ending with, of course, with Samoa Joe. But yeah, I, I thought, I thought it was a good show. You know, I got to watch it back. And then I did, there were a lot of things that a lot of people didn't realize that last, or of course, week before last now, we did 
two shows in Des Moines, Iowa. We did the live show, and then we also taped the Christmas week show that uh, aired Christmas week, and, and it was like it was like doing WrestleMania in Des Moines, Iowa, because it was like six hours worth of TV that we did in one night. Those people got to see twenty matches, and uh, I was I was amazed at how well you know they they sat through the entire night and was still you know they were still excited on the on the main event of the second show you know which was um ray mysterio and seth rollins and everything so it was it was a and and then of course i guess that's what you want to talk about is is what happened at the end of the seth rollins match when the aop was dragging ray mysterio up the ramp well i think people are a little confused about the ending of the show so i just wanted to clear some light on it you were protecting vic you did not run from the aop you were you were helping vic and making sure that he got to safety Wait a minute, what are you doing now? You're protecting me, right? I heard this from somebody in the company who knows things, and um, I, I was watching. I actually have like a, a special feed where I can see what happens after the show goes off the air, and what people didn't see was you returning, uh, took your sweater off, pulled the strap down, and backed off the AOP and Seth Rollins after they attacked Joe. So you, you made a dramatic <laughs> save. Who told you this? I can't remember. I bet you don't, because <laughs> I don't remember that happening either. Oh yeah, it was classic. All I remember was when uh, I saw when I saw them grab uh, poor old Samoa Joe and pick him up over their heads. I I I didn't even actually get to see him go through the table because I had turned around and was try, trying to find another exit out of the place. <laughs> <laughs> So that uh, that third announcer position, yeah. it can be a little rough. That is not looking good. I, I wouldn't want to be uh, – well, I don't know. I've, I really haven't heard that much about Joe. I don't know if he'll be back with us uh, again this Monday uh, or what. But, I, you know, I, I, I know that I was told this at first, that, you know, the, the whole state of the, the announce position there was sort of in a state of flux from the get-go, from the day that uh, – you know, that we switched over and, and Cole and Corey left and went over to, to SmackDown. And so, yeah, things things have just been changing all along. And I, I, I'm we were both, at least Vic and I were told that, you know, hey, uh, Joe's going to be in there until his hand gets well. Because when, when Joe first came and started in there uh, after Dio, he, his cast was, I mean, his hand was actually in a cast. So, but then the cast came off the first week, and and I I don't know he may be, you know he may be back ready to go, and I and he better be because it looks like he's going to get, uh, you know he's going to get involved with the AOP in a hurry here. Yeah, I think this is this is shaping up fun. It's kind of like a uh, uh, Rey Mysterio, Samoa Joe, Kevin Owens super team being formed to go against Seth Rollins and the AOP. That should be some good good stuff that comes out of that. Yeah, it should be. It really is. Uh, and then Joe had said, I don't know, one, two, maybe three or four different times during the show, you know, he just sort of went off on the AOP uh, really, really strong. And so then when, you know, when they came over and confronted him, I just felt like, uh, you know, of course, you know, they, they've got me on like what you call the no touch list or something like that. I guess they think that I'll have a, you know, die on the air again or something if I have any kind of phys physicality with anybody. So you're on the Dave Brown list. Yeah, Dave Brown. But anyway, yeah, I just uh, 
I just try to get as far away from any kind of thing like that when it's happening. And of course, Vic, you know, Vic is definitely, we were trying to push each other out of the way to get the farthest away from the table when it was about to go down. So, but yeah, that should, that should be a good, that should be a good situation with Joe and those guys. I mean, that's similar styles of, of wrestling and, and it should, it should be some good stuff. And then I know what we were going to talk about. There's a wedding Monday. <laughs> that's right. But you know, I've enjoyed the stuff with Lana and, Lashley and Rusev and and this week leading up everybody knows I mean gosh how much fun have we had in the past when they had weddings people getting married on the show we could have done a whole show about WWE weddings yeah exactly there have been some great ones who all let's see who all can you remember was the first person to get married was uh on a WWE TV was was that Plowboy Frazier or Uncle Elmer I think it was. I think it was back in like 85 on TNT. That's why, you know, I laugh so much when people say, you know, oh, Vince McMahon and his sports entertainment, he's shoving down our throat. I'm like, it's been happening for 35 years. Either you like Vince McMahon's vision of pro wrestling or do something else with your time. It's not like he's making a, a dramatic change. We had Uncle Elmer getting married on TV very long, you know, decades ago. And then did Randy... Randy Savage. Yeah, Randy and Elizabeth. Let's see. Triple H and Stephanie were going to. That led up to a big marriage. You don't never, you know, so you never know what's going to happen on a, at, a, at a WWE wedding. We don't know. We don't know what's going to happen this Monday night. I mean, it could be who knows what could ha- happen at the, the, the wedding of Lashley and Lana. Oh, my gosh. Stick around. We've got more to come on the Jerry Lawler Show. We got the in the house tonight. Yes, we do, man. <laughs> Unbelievable, man. Titans in here. You have to go off, dude. We ready to do this stuff? We're ready to rock, man. You ready to rock, Camera yeah. guys, ready to roll. Mike, you ready? Ready. Ready. This is free to hop boxing, exclusively available in Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. All hail the king. It's the Jerry Lawler Show. What we're going to do today is just a part two to wrap up the year of the uh, questions and answers because we got so many great questions from the listeners and people really enjoyed the show last week. And this is something that we'll probably do not as a full show every week, but uh, just a segment where we do a couple questions. So feel free to keep shooting those over to at Lawler Show and uh, I will keep track of those. Yeah, because that was that was an idea of one of the uh, one of our listeners. He said, why don't you guys make this a weekly segment and i thought yeah that's a good idea because there's always going to be different questions and plus send in your question and and you'll have to tune back in and subscribe and tune back in and see if uh, you know we answer your question every week we're not going to be able to go out and let everybody know beforehand whose question we're going to answer so uh It'll kind of be some little suspense there. Let's go ahead and get started. I, but last week, there was so much interest in the goatee question. I thought I'd do one kind of similar here. It came from Kelsey Mason at Kelsey Mason 1991. Curious why Jerry went from his king, you know, black and occasionally red jacket with the tassels on raw to the bedazzled shirt. How did that transition happen? And this is going to be one of the, some of the great parts about answering these questions is because sometimes – I may not remember or may not even know the answer. And that's that's one of those things that that came about because of, first of all, I, at the time, it was the first uh, this company called uh, Xavier 
Xavier shirts. I think you may still be able to find some of their stuff online if you go to, I think it's XavierUSA.com or something like that. Uh, and, and, and affliction, uh, the, it was like at the dawn of, of those people putting out these shirts that had all of this bling, uh, you know, all of these bedazzled, jewel-like uh, fronts of the shirts and everything. The coats that I was wearing with epaulets on the shoulders and the medals and all that sort of stuff, I only had two of those. Of course, I still have them, and I still pull them out on a, you know, a special occasion, but I had a black one and I have a red one. You know, I don't, I don't know. I just felt like, oh, man, I'm just tired of wearing these same things over and over and over. And then when I first laid eyes on those bedazzled shirts and those really blinged out shirts, I just, I, I thought they really looked cool. And so that's how, um, you know, that's how that came about. And then it was like, I was trying to find a different shirt every single week, you know, and so it was like fun to look for those different type, type shirts. And I wound up now with, I have closets full of those shirts, maybe, Oh, I don't know, maybe three or 400 of those shirts. So, uh, and now the, that's the other thing. And then the, the next transition came along was when I came back and now this time coming back on raw, they thought they, you know, they, they, Vince had definitely had an idea of the way he wanted the announcers to look. And of course, of course, you know, Vic is, you know, he's the straight, uh, play by play guy. He needs to look very conservative and, and just, a you know, a nice, a uh, really nice suit or, or sport jacket, but it needs to, you know, it needs to be, you know, really updated and, and with the times. Then whoever the other person was, like at the time, Dio, you know, he was supposed to have the, the real young looking look and, and, um, and that sort of thing. And then me, they just said, you know, hey, just, uh, get a nice sport coat and, uh, I, they knew I wasn't going to wear a tie. But anyway, you know, just a nice shirt underneath the tie. So that's, I mean, underneath the underneath the sport coat. So that's how our look has started out with now raw. And the and it's funny. The other day, I was in, I was out doing some Christmas shopping and I happened to go through the men's department. And I see it was just like, wow, look at this. What's what's happening here? I see um, that on a bunch of these mannequins, they had a like a you know, nice sport coat. And even some of them were like tuxedo jackets, but like sport coats and underneath the sport coats, they had like blinged out shirts. And I mean, so that may be like a little bit of a, a style now, you know, that's uh, it just, just like a couple of weeks ago when Rusev came down uh, for his segment, he had on a nice sport coat and everything. And underneath he had a Donald Duck shirt. You remember that? Yeah. So I guess, I guess now today the, uh, the a style or the statement that you can make is you could wear just about any type thing underneath the, underneath this, as long as you got the nice sport coat and it's still sort of dressy. I can get, I can get behind that. Yeah. I may, I may try that, get that little bit of my blinged out shirts underneath my black or blue sport coat, you know. Tell Vince it's what, it's what's hip now. Yeah, Vince, if you don't believe it, go walk through Macy's and check out the mannequins. <laughs> So here's a very interesting question um, that I'm sure you've been asked before, but uh, I, I'm not sure what the answer is. Jeff Townsend at Jeff Finetown says, do you ever wonder what if you didn't break your leg? What direction your career could have gone? And then says, uh, love listening to the show and keeping Memphis memories alive. But, um, yeah, I mean, you were a heel with Jimmy Hart as your manager, and that obviously completely changed the course of what you were doing and the rest of the decade ever thought about uh, if that had not happened never 
<laughs> I know that's a short answer, but now, you know, we, you and I have talked about this before, and I think we've talked about it a little bit on the on the podcast is I've just never been the sort never been the sort of guy to sit around and think about. Uh, first of all, number one, I never been the sort of guy to sit around and think about my career, you know, quote unquote career. I've never really looked at this, at, at what I do as a career. It's from from day one. It's just been a day in, day out job that I get up and like go to work and do that I love. I mean, and that's that's the main thing I've been so fortunate of that I do think about that, how lucky I've been and how fortunate I've been my entire life to do something and make money and make a, a living doing something that I absolutely love to do. But I've ne- really never sat around and thought about we talk. I think what we talked about before was like a legacy. I've never thought about it as my career or I've never thought about it as a legacy or anything like that. I've just thought about it, um, you know, day in and day out as a job. And I, I once, you know, I look at other, uh, I think a lot of other athletes and, and in different sports, especially baseball and pitching or football being a quarterback, you, you go out and you do your job and you need to, you probably best thing to do is forget about yesterday, you know, especially a pitcher. You know, if he goes out and has a bad day and gets, you know, gives up eight or nine runs and gets pulled from the game on his next start, he's got to put that completely out of his mind and, uh, and, and, you know, and you start over. And I've always looked at my job as every day is a new day and I'm starting over from scratch. I mean, you know, this is like the first day of my, the rest of my life. This is the first day of the rest of my job. And I don't, I really don't go back and think about what, oh man, what would have happened here if I, if I had done this differently, if I'd done that and that sort of stuff. I've just never been one of those kind of people to, to think about that sort of stuff. So, you know, I've never thought about if I didn't break my leg, what would have, you know, what would have happened? Would I have stayed of heel or what? I just, ugh. I don't know. I just uh, that really never seemed like that would uh, uh, accomplish anything. We have one here from at CT Dalton one CTD. Any interesting memories in wrestling? The original Sheik, ah, Eddie Farhat, the original Sheik. The first, you know, probably one of my most interesting memories is the first time I can actually remember seeing or realizing what wrestling was was. Uh, you know, as I told a lot of people, I was born in Memphis, Tennessee. My dad worked at the Ford Motor Assembly plant here in Memphis where they put together cars for, and, and built Fords uh, at an assembly plant in Memphis. And when I was seven years old, uh, the, the Ford plant here in Memphis shut down. They built a new company up in a little town called Amherst, Ohio, Vermilion, Ohio, right right next to each other. And they gave everybody in Memphis that worked at that at the plant here, when they shut it down, they, if you wanted to keep your job, you could transfer or pick up your family and move to uh, Ohio, and you'd still have your job at that assembly plant there. So that's what we did. My family moved when I was um, seven years old. We moved up to a little town called Amherst, Ohio, and we were up there for eight years. And during that time, I, I don't even remember seeing or Watching wrestling, I don't even know if it's, I'm sure it was on TV in Memphis, but I never saw it or remember it while, you know, up until uh, we moved to Ohio. So once we got in Ohio and I was seven or eight years old, I remember the that's the first time I saw wrestling on TV. And it was coming out of Cleveland, uh, on broad, being broadcast on a station out of Cleveland. And that that territory at that time was part of the original Sheik's territory out of Detroit. He was based out of Detroit, Michigan. 
Big time wrestling. Yeah, big time wrestling. And Cleveland was one of the one of the cities that he ran. And so so we saw the we saw his weekly TV show out of Cleveland. And that was the first time the the Sheik was one of the first wrestlers that I remember seeing when I was whatever. I mean, like I said, I was, you know, but I was somewhere between the age of seven and 14 or 15. So, I mean, it may have been later on, but somewhere in that time is when I first saw wrestling on TV out of Cleveland and the Sheik and Bobo Brazil, they were the big hot item, the big main event guys. And that's who I, that's the first time I remember seeing him. And who would have ever thought that years later, I would actually be in a wrestling ring wrestling against not only the Sheik, but we had wrestled. I got to wrestle Bobo Brazil. And I remember another tag team up there at the time, Chris and John Tolos. That's the only four wrestlers that I can remember. The Tolos brothers, these Greek wrestlers and and the Sheik and Bobo Brazil. And later on, when I, you know, the first uh, part of my career, when I got into wrestling, I got to wrestle three of those guys. One of the, I got to wrestle John Tolos. I got to wrestle Eddie Farhead, the Sheik, and I got to wrestle Bobo Brazil. The funny thing was when, uh, I guess this was like, I think 1974, we were trying to build me up, or Jerry Jarrett was trying to build me up to get to wrestle in a world title match against Jack Briscoe. So they came up with the idea of, uh, you know, he said, we, we told the fans that in order to get that match, I was going to have to go through the top 10 contenders for the NWA world title at the time. And on that list was the Sheik, Bobo Brazil, Dory Funk Jr., uh, Mr. Wrestling 2, Dick the Bruiser. I mean, Jerry went out of his, I mean, he, he came up with literally, you know, some of the top 10 names in wrestling. And this, that was the first time I had ever remembered, you know, them spending that kind of money to bring in these big name guys. And for, so for 10 straight or nine, I think, or nine or 10 straight weeks, we brought in those guys and I wrestled them one by one. And of course, it was funny. That's when, that's when we realized the power of, the power of television. Uh, even if you didn't win, you could go on TV and say you won and nobody would, you know, 90% of the people would not know the difference. And so most of those matches, uh, because I was such a young guy and no unheard of in the business of nobody, you know, uh, most of those guys weren't just, des- weren't necessarily willing to, uh, do the favor. They weren't going to put somebody over that they didn't know, just a young guy, and they came into the territory for the first time. And uh, they didn't mind doing a disqualification. So most of those matches, I I won by disqualification. You know, they'd they'd wind up getting so mad. I'd cheat so much, and they'd finally, you know, they'd get the chain away from me and start blasting me and then wind up hitting the referee. And, you know, so whoever I was wrestling would usually get disqualified, but it still counted as a win for me, and I would keep moving up the ladder. But one of the guys that that you're talking about, the Sheik, when he came in, I'll never forget, it was back back in the – sitting back in the back of the Coliseum, and we had a special dressing room for him. And Jerry Jarrett told me, he said, well, you might want to go over. And he, she got here early and he's been back in his locker room for already over an hour. I said, just go over and, you know, kind of introduce yourself and, and talk to him. And, and you never met him or anything. So just so go over and talk to him a little bit. So I go into his dressing room, you know, did uh, said hi and sat down and started talking. And I do remember that I didn't even uh, say my name. I, for some reason, I just thought he would know who I was. Right. So anyway, we sit down and we start talking about Memphis and Memphis wrestling, this sort of stuff. And I guess we'd talk for 15 or 20 minutes. And then finally he said, uh, he said, Oh, by the way, kid, do you know who I'm, do you know who I'm working with tonight? <laughs> 
I said, oh, uh, uh, that would be me. <laughs> he said, oh, okay. And, uh, you know, we shared a little laugh there, but we talked for 20 minutes before he even knew who I was. And then the next time we brought him back a few weeks later, he told me this story. He said, up in my, up in the territory, he said, I have, you know, up in Detroit, big time wrestling or whatever. He said, we put out, just like you guys do, we put out a weekly program at our matches. And that program is bicycled around to all of the, the different, uh, the different cities that we go to. And he said, I, I brought this back to show you. He said, look what my idiot, uh, my guy that does the programs did. And he said, I, I took your picture back after working with you that first night. And he said, I told him what a great match you had what, that we had. And, you know, that, that uh, what a great worker you were and all this kind of stuff. And I said, put put his picture in our program because we may try to bring him up here later on. And, I, and he said, I told the guy that you're a fabulous worker and that, you know, we wanted to try to use you some. And so he hands me this program. And here on the second page is my picture, and it says, and the caption on the bottom was, it said, Memphis and Jerry Lawler, a fabulous worker. <laughs> <laughs> right. And so, that you know, that was in the days where you you didn't break kayfabe at all. You know, so for that to get put out in print, it, I mean, it drove sheep crazy. But, you know, the, all the programs were already printed up. There's nothing you could do about it. But he said, yeah, look at this idiot. I told him you were a fabulous worker, and he writes it in the program. Oh, that is funny. I've never heard that story. Especially in those days, in the early seventies, yeah. Man, yeah, that was that was a big no-no back in the day. But anyway, yeah, I worked with him, and um, you know that was the that was my first introduction to the throwing the fire. Uh, that's how that's how he got disqualified. You know, he threw the threw the fire at me, and I ducked, and it hit the uh, hit our hit our referee. So that was uh, I think that was where I I think that was where my first thought of using the fire gimmick came from of course i think uh, I, if i if i'm not mistaken that you know that sheik was the first one ever to do it in wrestling i believe yeah i think that's i think that's correct this person also says you know i i saw you wrestle ox baker once and he seemed uh, kind of slow and immobile does that make a match a lot more difficult when one combatant is so limited in the ring well i mean you know it's it's something that you really have to uh take into consideration and I've, I've always prided myself on being able to work around anybody's, you know, injury or anybody's immobility or anything like that. And and uh, and now sometimes I think about something like that. I think about when I'm getting in the ring, uh, you know, still to these, you know, to these young guys, they're probably thinking, oh, my gosh, you know, what is what is he going to be able to do? How am I going to have to change my style of work to work with, you know, Jerry Lawler now? And in 2020 but um i you know what i'll never forget ox baker i still have i still have the artwork that i drew for an ox baker t-shirt back in the that was probably the late 70s i think that may be the first time i met dutch mantel i believe i was down in atlanta i think it was 1976 and i had gone down to atlanta to work a little bit with um Jerry was sending me down there to work for Jim, Jim Barnett, and he was booking Atlanta at the, uh, oh, I guess it was the Omni then or something. And anyway, I'm, 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 we had a certain place that a lot of the wrestlers stayed there in Atlanta, and I'm, I'm driving down the street in my little rental car there, and I see this guy walking, and I thought it was Ox Baker. And so anyway, I pull over, and it was, it was, Dirty Dutch Mantel. 
And I think that was the first time I ever met Dutch. And Dutch will tell you that he was trying to pattern his look after Ox Baker. He, he, Ox Baker was Dutch Mantel's hero. I mean, that was his, that was the guy that Dutch grew up idolizing. And he always, you know, and I guess with all the, the hair and the, you know, and then he would try to cut his mustache and, and everything the same way that Ox Baker did his. And so anyway, uh, then, then later on, I did get to meet, I, I always thought that Ox Baker had the greatest face for a heel wrestler of anybody I've ever seen. And I'll never forget. I got the, I've got the, I did this artwork for t-shirt and I said something about, can't remember the whole line, but it's like ugly go, ugly goes clear to the bone. And that was the, that was the, uh, line, that was the writing on the shirt with a picture of Ox Baker's face. So anyway, then I, then I did, yeah, I got to meet Ox and it was towards the end of his career and actually became friends with him. He would, uh, I met him somewhere and he signed a whole bunch of pictures for me for some reason. I don't know why. I still have this, I still have this sack of pictures that Ox Baker signed for me, I guess just to, you know, to give away or something like that, that, uh, uh, at, at one of our matches. And so anyway, he, he's, then of course, once he passed away at that time, I'd become to where, you know, we would text each other and, and talk to each other every now and then on the phone. And he was, a, he was a really cool guy. I, I really, uh, you know, I don't remember exactly how that match went with Ox and I, but, uh, I, I do know that, you know, towards the end of his career, he, his his knees were really bad and he was really limited as to what he could do. But, you know, that's I mean, Ox with that look and that face and everything, he was a he was what we call in the business a walk and talk guy. You know, he didn't have to do a whole lot to, to have it to be entertaining and have an entertaining match. He was one of those guys when I finally got to, it was like it was like working with the, the Sheik and Bobo Brazil and Dick the Bruiser, those guys, you know, for the first time, because he was somebody that I had admired and thought a lot of for, you know, for a long time, even like before I got into business. He had that unique gimmick that fit his look of a couple wrestlers died Wow. After having matches with him. Yeah. Sure. Big heart punch. I could really, I could have a great match with, with Ox now. <laughs> I? Don't blame me for this question. We're just changing gears here a little bit. It's R. Scott, Scott Vaughn at RSV 630. What is wrong with our Cleveland sports teams? Oh, man. That's a good question. I swear I had a long talk the uh, uh, Christmas Eve. No, the day after. Was it when was it? Uh, Christmas Eve, yeah. Christmas Eve, Brad Mellon called me, and he's he's my good friend. He's the equipment manager of the Browns. He's with him every single day. And uh, and he was telling me that after the loss to uh, the Ravens, they the coach had him practicing. They had to practice. They had to come in at 10 o'clock in the morning and practice on Christmas Day. Right. And they got a game against Cincinnati, who is like, what is Cincinnati, like one in 15 or one in 13 or something like that. And of course, that one is my New York Jets that they defeated. Yeah, well, you're right. <laughs> you're right. But anyway, you got you got Cincinnati coming up as like what the last game of the season, you know, they had a, he, they made a practice on Christmas Day. So there's just I, I, I really don't know. I, I had such high hopes for, you know, I had such high hopes for the Browns this year. I met John Dorsey last year and, and, and he was just a cool guy. And I, I love all the moves that Dorsey had made and, and acquiring the different talent. And on paper, they look like one of the most talented teams in the whole NFL. And it's so when, when I see that much talent and then it's just not all coming together once they get out on there on Sunday afternoons, whew, as much as I hate to say it, it's, I, I think it's got to be uh, the coaching. 
I, I you know, I, I, every week people will pick out some different moves or different plays and things that went wrong. I mean, you know, this past week they were playing the Baltimore Ravens, who's been, the last team they lost to was the Cleveland Browns, and that's been like 10 or 11 weeks ago. They won such a huge winning streak, and they're good. And Cleveland was winning six to nothing going in the going in the last two minutes of of the half, and Cleveland had the ball. And all the, I mean, I could I could have coached this. All they had to do was make just a couple of different coaching moves, and they would have been able to sit on the ball and just run the timeout and gone into halftime leading six to nothing. And somehow, with a couple of just stupid calls moves. They wound up not only losing the ball, but giving up 14 points in the final two minutes of the first half. And they go in instead of going into halftime leading six to nothing, they go in trailing 14 to six. And it was just it was just crazy. So I think something's got to be done. They, they, They still need an offensive line help. But like I was saying, I was talking to Brad, Brad Mellon the other day. And this is honest to goodness truth. He said, King, here's what I'm going to suggest. He said, I really believe this would work. He said, they ought to bring you in as the head coach and <laughs> Miz in as the offensive coordinator. <laughs> I said, hey, put me down. Well, I think Miz and I would both take those jobs. But anyway, I don't, I don't know. It's just it's a crazy thing to be from Cleveland. And all of the years of long suffering, the baseball team, the football team, oh, we can never, we can never get over that hump. Do you realize this, this is a bad, really bad statistic for the Browns? Cleveland Browns, the only team in the entire NFL that went this entire decade, 10 years without having a winning season. Oh, that's rough. That is not rough. That's horrible. That's terrible. You got to go back to that Derek Anderson team from like 06, 07, the one, 10 games, I think. Derek Anderson, who was he one of our quarterbacks? What, wasn't he? I don't know. <laughs> We've had so many, so many. Oh, gosh, I don't remember who was the last time. A 2007 Pro Bowler for the Browns, yeah. So he, he, he was like the, I remember, if I'm correct, yeah, they won 10 games, but uh, been, been, it was a rough decade. Without a doubt, without a doubt, it's tough, tough. So my answer to that question is, I wish I knew what's wrong with our Cleveland teams, but I don't. I'm just like you. And you know what's so, so funny is uh, Vic, Vic Joseph, our, you know, my, my broadcast partner there on Raw, he's lives in Cleveland and he's, uh, he lives in, I think in Strongsville and he's, you know, a diehard Browns fan. He sent me, you know, he was texting me from the game Sunday, the Baltimore game and uh, showing me, you know, where his seats were. And he's sitting in the dog pound watching the game. And then of course, like with, <laughs> with about four minutes or so left in the game, he sent me a text that, uh, just leaving the stadium now. <laughs> and so, you know, it's like the fans are just a mass exodus as they do every single week up there in Cleveland with just so much disappointment. So anyway, at least I got a broadcast partner that he and I can, we can, uh, sit around every week, which we do every Monday and, and reminisce about how bad the game was the day before. You're listening to the Jerry Lawler show. Thanks for joining us. Five-hour energy is energy on the go. Well, what if you're not going anywhere for a while? Then five-hour energy is for getting stuff done while you're stuck at home, like doing an honest day's work for your boss. Getting rid of old clothes. Oh, my old bell-bottoms. Scouring the grout in your shower. Working out on that old stationary bike. 
and so much more. Go to the store or order online at shop5hourenergy.com. 5-Hour Energy, energy for hunkering down. Welcome back to the Jerry Lawler Show. At St. Louis Cardinals fan 1982, do you think they're ever going to build like an actual physical wrestling WWE Hall of Fame as far as WWE itself building it? That's another very good question. And everybody, everybody, especially around this time of year, you know, when they start talking about the the Hall of Fame inductees and all this sort of stuff, everybody gets that on their mind and everybody talks about it. It seems like everybody except Vince. And of course, you know, he's going to be the guy that makes the final decision. But I've always thought. That would be a great move, especially for, you know, now that we have the we have the performance center and everything NXT in Orlando. I just think Orlando would be just a natural place to have, you know, to have that Hall of Fame. And it it could really be I mean, it wouldn't take a whole lot of planning either to make it such a cool place to visit. I mean, they have they have all of the gosh, they have all of the memorabilia and stuff you know they put it out almost every year at, at wrestlemania time you know at access so all of that stuff would that is there uh, somewhere and in, the, in the, i think it's in stanford kept in the big storage uh big warehouses there at the headquarters so all that cool stuff is there and the other thing that they could do on a i mean they could have somebody there Every single day of the year, if they wanted to, that could just be an appearance for some of the WWE legends. I mean, you know, they've got tons of these guys on legend contracts, guys that are already in, you know, the WWE Hall of Fame. I mean, every single day could be somebody different uh, appearing at the at the uh, WWE Hall of Fame Museum or whatever. Uh, They could just, you know. Everybody that would come to this thing would actually not only see all the memorabilia, they would get a chance to actually meet one of the legends and one of the Hall of Famers. And uh, it it could just be a really, really cool thing. And uh, I don't know why they haven't done it. You know, and of course, just like everything else, uh, Hulk Hogan has a really cool store there in uh, Orlando, you know, the, the Hogan's Beach Shop or something like that. And. You know, it's just it's a store. It's just you go in it's, it's got all kind of displays of Hulk and everything. But it's just it's a it's a store where you buy all kind of merchandise. And that would be the other thing. Can you imagine all the WWE merchandise that could be on sale? Just like when you go to, you know, every ride that you go through and at Disney World or Universal, boom, it dumps you out right at the end of a store. You know, if it's Pirates of the Caribbean or whatever, boom, at the end of it, there's all this You come out of the ride. And there's a store with all the, you know, the pirate stuff and the, you know, the, the hook for the hands and all that kind of stuff. Well, that could be the same. Same thing when you go through the WWE Hall of Fame, bang, there you come right out and there's all the merchandise and all the WWE stuff. I just think it could be a big I, I think it could be a big draw and a big money making uh, thing for the company. Yeah, I remember there being a rumor that it, they might put one at Universal, the resort itself, that, you know, area they have outside with all the shops and everything. And obviously, they have the great relationship with NBC Universal and being on USA. So um, I don't know. Hopefully, someday. Yeah, I, I would think so. I would rather it be. Well, I mean, that that would be okay as long as it was a big, you know, sort of. Not yeah. I I just envision it as some place that would be a big standalone thing. Like you see the the big Ripley's Believe It or Nots or something down there. I mean, I and those things are huge and they. They put through a lot of people, and I think this would have this this would have much more of a universal appeal than a Ripley's Believe It or Not. But those things are, you know, those things are in a lot of different cities, and they're they're big and everything. And 
And I just think the WWE Hall of Fame would be even bigger. All right. Here's an interesting one from uh, Jacob D. English at uh, Jacob English. What was the hardest moment you had to overcome during your wrestling career? Well, still, I think if I try to think back on all of it, man, there's been probably three big. We're talking about my wrestling and my career and everything. I think, number one, the first thing that was really tough was when uh, I broke my leg playing football back in the 80s or 1980 or something like that. I mean, I was out. I don't know. It was never, I'll never forget. You know, we're, we're just playing. Starts out every week we do this. We start out playing a touch football game on Sunday over at Treadwell High School, where I went to high school, a bunch of my, you know, school buddies and all this sort of things. And Jerry Calhoun was, was playing and Jimmy Hart would be playing every week and all these kind of guys that went to Treadwell High School. Boom, some kind of way Calhoun tries to do this body block thing on me and he hit my leg just right. I was wearing some football cleats and boom, the, my cleats stuck in the ground and, and he hit the side of my leg and it broke both bones in my lower between my knee and my ankle and my right leg. And I'm laying there, you know, and I can remember it like yesterday and we, they call an ambulance. I'm waiting for the ambulance to come and, and I'm thinking like, you know, I guess like any young the the way the young guys the wrestlers think these days and I I was one of them at the time you think you're invulnerable you think you nothing can stop you you think you're you know that and that's why I think so many of these guys have have get problem with drugs and and then that sort of thing you just think that oh nothing you know nothing can stop me nothing bad can happen to me I'm like Superman or whatever and I was just laying there with a broken leg and I was thinking yeah a couple of weeks I'll be fine <laughs> be no problem um, and that's when the my uh orthopedic doctor finally looks and he and he told me a little bit later on a month or two in he said he said jerry i'll tell you the truth i've been doing this my whole life and he said when people break a bone in their body if it heals back with no problems he said that's the exception he said that's just not used that just isn't usually what happens usually there's some sort of there's some sort of uh problem or something that goes along with it and my my break in my leg turned i turned out to get what was called and i'd never even heard of it a non-union you ever heard of that non-union no well that's when the if you have a break in like say the the femur bone or something that's when the ends where it's where it's broken the two ends heal over but the bone itself doesn't heal back together so you have a permanently broken bone that's the two where it was broken. The, that end kind of heals over and the other end heals over, but the, the bone's not joined back together yet. So I got what you call a non-union in my leg. So about six months in after, you know, we're in this long full leg brace for months and months, they had to go back in, cut open my leg up and re-break Basically, it's not, they call it re-break, but really it's like just sawing or, you know, sanding off the ends of the, each of the bones and sticking it back together again. So it's like resetting, re-breaking and resetting your leg again. So I started over six months in with another rehab. So that took, from the time I broke my leg to the time I was back was one year, an entire year. And during that time, I had no income. Jerry Jarrett was mad at me because I broke my leg when I was a star wrestler and it shouldn't have been out doing something like that when I was the main event every week in all the cities. So he was mad. So I was cut off. I had no income for a year. Oh, I didn't realize that part of it. Oh, yeah. And like I went broke. I mean, I was, you know, just paying my bills with no income and all the money that I'd saved up was just, you know, just going out every week. 
so that was that was probably one of my one of my toughest times. Then, of course, you know, coming back from the uh, coming back from the uh, dying on raw TV. That's a good one to overcome. Yeah, that was a good one to overcome. Yeah, that was that was what I I wanted to tell those guys, the AOP guys, where they were coming over to the table, or when Brock Lesnar was coming over the table. I just want to say, guys, I beat death. I'm not <laughs> afraid of you. But yeah, coming back from the heart attack was, uh, and I don't like to say heart attack. Coming back from the cardiac arrest, I mean, it was it was it was difficult for. I, I would just. I just kept trying to convince everybody that I was okay and ready to come back. And, and still to this day, you know, the people in the WWE still feel like that's, that's not the case. They worry about me. I keep me on the, they keep me on the, you know, no touch list and all of that kind of thing. And I think we've talked about this before on the podcast, you know, the doctors say, the doctors told Lauren, oh, we can't, we can't clear him to go back in the ring because he's like a, liability to the company. Whereas I, and I, I told Lauren, I said, well, you got to understand, you know, here's a guy, here I am, you know, I had a cardiac arrest. I died on nationwide network TV. Once I'm back and ready to go again, if they grant my request and they just, you know, they say, okay, we'll let you decide what you think is best. And they let me go out there and wrestle again. If something did, God forbid, something did happen again, you know, it would be a it would be like a PR disaster for the company. They would say, oh, you know, all the people that Twitter would blow up, you know, oh, you know, this company, you know, what a bunch of money hungry people to put a poor guy that's, you know, has a heart condition or something back out into the ring, even though I'm the one that was making that decision, even though I'm the one that wants to do it. So anyway, that that's been that's been tough to come back from. Other than that, it's about the main. Yeah, that's that, that's a big one. That's <laughs> tough to beat. One last question here from Spencer at Seether Fan for Life it says, "Can you tell me some stories about Tojo Yamamoto? He was my great grandmother's favorite wrestler, and I don't know much about him, like how he was as a worker or as a face or heel. My great grandmother died 16 years before I was born, so I would love to know more about Tojo." Man. Well, Tojo was a mainstay here in the Memphis wrestling. He was he was one of the big stars when I came back from Ohio in 1967. Well, 19 actually we came back in I think 65 or 66. We moved back to Memphis and that's when of course I started watching Memphis wrestling. And Tojo was the, you know, Tojo was one of the top stars then. Once I once I finally got to, you know, got in the business and got to know Tojo, totally different from the, you know, from the appearance that he that he gave everybody on TV. You know, just like just like so many people in wrestling at that time during the 60s when Tojo started, you know, I I don't know if he came up with the name or if Nick Goulas came up with the name. Probably. I think probably Tojo. But uh, Tojo was not even Japanese. He was Hawaiian and his his actual real name was Larry. <laughs> and so uh, it was. But during that time, everybody would get the you know, they would go with these stereo type names that would automatically make you a heel. I mean, you know, like I think Tojo, there was an emperor Tojo in Japan during, you know, all of these names were from, of course, World War II or whatever. And they would just still strike, you know, bring up the, the hatred and everything that people had during the, during the war years. And so there was a, there was a, Yamamoto was a famous Japanese name of a, either a general or somebody during the war. And of course, Tojo was the, was the leader and everything during the war. So he combined those two names and, 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 you know, it's just a, just a great, just a great Japanese name for, for a heel during the time. 
And uh, he was not, Tojo was not a big guy at all. He's short. He was probably five, gee, maybe five foot nine, something like that. But, uh, you know, just a little round guy. And, and he had the greatest, I always thought he had the greatest facial expressions. And he would talk to me at the time when I first got in the business. I'll never forget making a trip with Tojo one time. And he's driving and he's, and he's talking about facial expressions. He said, you, you got to, and the, and the great thing Dojo would, he would do his gimmick uh, all the time. He, you know, he talked to, even when he's just talking to you in the locker room or he's talking to you on a trip uh, while we're driving, you know, he'd do the voice gimmick all the time. He's kept it, he stayed in character with the, with the voice all the time. And he said, you, you Jerry Lala, you got to make the people, people that are sitting up in the cheap seats. They're sitting far away. You got to make them feel your pain. And the only way you make them feel your pain is just do your face. They got to be able to see your face. I realized later that this was like a big rib that he would do on the young guys. They were just getting started in the business. And he said, you know, look in the mirror. And he'd pull his, he'd twist his rearview mirror around right where I'm seeing my face. And he said, show me pain. Let me see your pain face. Naturally, I'm, you know, trying to make a pain. He said, that no good. That no good pain face. He said, let, let, let me show you. And he would reach over and like grab my cheek, right? Just like a school teacher would have done or your mother would have done when you were a little kid. And he would start squeezing on my cheek as hard as he could. And, and of course, he said, that's a good face, that pain face. Look at the pain. Look at the pain. Look at the pain. And he's squeezing my cheek, dude. Finally, when he lets go, I get these big bruises on the side of my face where he's just like ripped my face off, right, with these uh, with these things. And and uh, but but Tojo was a master of uh, facial expressions. That's that's how he would get his matches over. He didn't take a lot of bumps. He didn't. And he was uh, Tojo was a hard guy to get to know. He didn't have many friends. He was he that he was he came over here and he had no family, no children, no wedding. He did have for a long time. He had a girlfriend that. But uh, she she had really cool looking, she really pretty red hair, and he called her Strawberry because that was the color of her hair. He said, "Hey, Strawberry, Strawberry, that's my girlfriend." So anyway, he had that's the only person that I ever remember Tojo being really close, close with. And he he was funny. He didn't uh, he lived in a boarding house in Nashville. Jerry Jarrett finally talked him into in 19 early 70s. Jerry Jarrett talked him into buying a house near where Jerry bought a house. Jerry Jerry bought the house on Old Hickory Lake in Hendersonville, Tennessee, that was owned by George Jones and Tammy Wynette, the country music stars, right? And they they got a they got a divorce and they put that house up for sale. Jerry Jarrett bought that house right next door to Johnny Cash. Johnny Cash lived right next door to him, and Roy Orbison lived right right down the street. So then Jerry, who was being partners with Tojo at the time, he talked Tojo into buying a house on the other side of Old Hickory Lake, not just kind of across the across the lake there from Jerry. And for some reason or other, Tojo bought the house, paid like. I don't know, $35,000 down on it or something like that. And he's, and he's financing this house and he never moved into the house. He just, he just, I don't know what the deal was. He just didn't want to leave where, where he had been for all these years since he moved to Nashville in this boarding house, this woman owned. And this is crazy. I wound up buying the house from Tojo. And he never he had never moved into it. So I wound up buying the house from Tojo and then I moved into it. I lived in that house for seven years. 
there in Hendersonville. Conway Twitty lived right down the street from me, and uh, uh, this other country star named Razzie Bailey. He moved in next door, so it was a big it was a big place that all the country music people and then sort of the some of the wrestling crowd kind of moved into uh, Hendersonville and everything. But I bought I bought that house from Tojo, and um, he stayed in the boarding house, and then finally. For years and years and years, Tojo's health got bad, and everybody could see that he just was, you know, he just didn't look good for a long time. And apparently, he finally, he didn't trust doctors, he didn't trust banks, and he was just, he just was a kind of a weird guy that just didn't trust a lot of people. One time, his car, he kept all his money in the trunk of a car instead of keeping it at a bank. Okay. And one time, his car got stolen in Birmingham, Alabama. With all his, it was like, there was all his world, all his money that he had saved his whole career and everything was gone in that car. But anyway, he didn't, he didn't trust doctors. Finally, he was feeling so bad and he went to the doctors and uh, apparently they told him that he had an inoperable cancer. I, I think it, if I'm not mistaken, maybe cancer of the liver or something. The doctors told him it was nothing they could do. It was already stage four or five or something. And, and they gave him like maybe six months to you know, to live. And Tojo went home and uh, shot himself. He's so remembered. Oh, my gosh. He was a big, I mean, you know, he, he and Jackie Fargo were the probably the two most, you know, talked about and remembered stars of the Memphis area. Well, of course, a little bit before them was, uh, you know, Sputnik Monroe and, and uh, Billy Wicks. After those two guys, you know, came Jackie Fargo and Tojo Yamamoto. And that's and one thing, of course, Tojo's name. I mean, just so, so memorable. But, yeah, he was he and Jackie were the, probably the two most talked about stars of that era. Yeah, which is impressive because, like you said, you know, it was an era of there was a lot of kind of stereotypical ethnic heels. But he transcended that. And just whenever you see people talking about Memphis wrestling on Facebook or Twitter, there's always talk about Tojo just made a, a great impression on people. Yeah, he did. And I was fortunate to become what I thought, you know, good friends with Tojo. I really liked him a lot. When I first started, when Jackie first booked me or got me through Nick Goulas, got me booked. I think that I've told this story before. I, I, I had heard that what they would do with young guys like myself that were just getting started and thought they wanted to be a wrestler, they would book you in matches with Tojo Yamamoto. And Tojo would beat up the young guys so bad because he just, he was, he had that kind of a personality. He was, you know, known as a guy that didn't like anybody. Like I said, didn't have any friends, didn't have any uh, family or anything like that. And especially young guys breaking in, he had this, like, uh, <laughs> he had a little special dislike for those guys, those rookies. And that what they would do is they would book you against Tojo, Tojo Yamamoto and he would beat you up so bad in the match that if you came back after that beating, then they thought, well, this kid may have some potential. He said, if he'll take a beating like that, well, they wound up booking me for about 10 straight weeks. Every Saturday night, I'd get beat up on TV on Saturday morning and then go over to Jonesboro, Arkansas and get beat up by Tojo. Every week for I don't know how many weeks. And finally, that was one of the things I'll never forget that Jackie Fargo took me in in the dressing room before the match with Tojo and said, hey, Tojo, you know, take it easy on my kid. This is my kid here. Take it easy on him. He's up on him a little bit. 
so that was one of the things that I thank Jackie for. And then, then, uh, you know, then worked with Tojo for years and years and years against him and partners with him and, and just, I, I love that guy. Absolutely. Memphis legend. So we made it through the questions. Uh, like we were saying, everybody feel free to tweet at Lawler show with your questions going forward. And we'll try to devote some time each week for that. Anything else uh, coming up before we sign up here? Well, the big wedding, I'm trying to decide. I asked Vic, uh, you know, this, this, coming Monday night where it was funny right before I went out John Cone you know John Cone the referee he sent me a tweet and he told me later that it was just he was just ribbon but I thought he really wanted me to say it on the air and I did wind up saying it on the air because I thought it was like a directive from somebody uh, you know higher up or something he said say that Hartford Connecticut is the most romantic city in America So anyway, I was watching the show back, and sure enough, I said, you know, oh, what a great place. We're gonna get, they're going to get married in Hartford, Connecticut, the most, most romantic city in America. So anyway, that's where that's, that's where that's coming from this week. And, and, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to what kind of surprises. I, you know, there's going to be something. It's just not going to be just a typical wedding. I asked Vic, I said, which side you're going to be sitting on? The brides or the grooms? And just, you know, there's just so much funny stuff that can, that can happen during a wedding. Thanks to everybody for listening. Hope you enjoyed your holidays and uh, enjoy the new year and all the college football and everything coming up. Oh, yeah. My, my Memphis Tigers, man. What about my Memphis Tigers in the Cotton Bowl? There you go. That, that, that there's a sports t- we got one good sports team going for you. Yep. Of course, you know, as usually what, what happens with your sports teams, when they get really good, all of a sudden they just start falling apart. I mean, you know, we had the best season that we've ever had. So somebody hires away our head coach. So Mike Norville, who, who, you know, guided Memphis on this great season, doesn't even get to coach him at the Cotton Bowl. Oh, he's not coaching the game? Nope. No, that's too bad. That's, that's one thing I always hated about, you know, when they hire these new coaches in college football. At the end of the year, all of a sudden, they get hired. I don't know why. Why don't they wait till after the bowl games to make a hire? You know, they waited till the last game of the season and Memphis wins and they had the championship. And then they're good to all of a sudden get booked into the Cotton Bowl. And then the coach decides to go to another college and uh, take another job. And boom, he's gone. And they say, oh, it's because of recruiting and everything. Well, why don't they put all of that recruiting stuff back a couple of weeks till the bowls are over with? Yeah, that does make sense. Uh, my dad went to Florida State, so I'm familiar with what a disaster uh, the, the team was. And that's why they made the, the hire. And I can see that they wanted to you know, get recruits, seeing that things are turning around. But it does. It is a shame, you know, especially those kids that you know made a decision to invest those years of their life with him. Uh, it's too bad that they don't get to finish off together. Well, anyway, it's going to be a great day for Memphis, I mean, being in the Cotton Bowl, even though, oh my gosh, they got Penn State. Ooh, we number 10 ranked team in the nation. So it's going to be a tough game, and they're not going to have their regular head coach that they've had all season long. But it's going to be fun to watch them in that big of a game. They've never, never in the history of the college have they been in a, a bowl, bowl game of this magnitude. All right, everybody, even if you're not from Memphis, let's rally <laughs> around and support the team just in honor of the greatest territory there ever was of the King of Memphis. And uh, we'll all be watching that game with excitement. All right, everybody, happy new year. What's happening, everybody? This is the official Lakers Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Trudell. 
Super pumped to be here, flanked by Aaron Larsoul. You ready to go? I'm ready to go. Let's, Let's get, get it. I think the Lakers will be a top 10 defense. Okay, now. you're calling your shot again. A team that has two stars, or two superstars in this case, as LeBron and AD, can sometimes cancel each other out. But I think they're both good candidates for MVP. I really like the way that this team just feels to be around. Mm-hmm. The uh, it's a it's a very clear message. It's two stars in LeBron and AD, and it's everybody else that's on board. The relationship that is developing between those two, off the court and on the court, their cohesiveness on the court. I think in this case, this is a special case that the two of them will enhance each other as opposed to taking away from each other. Be sure to rate, subscribe, and leave a review. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. Okay.